That's Kyle Dubas, <laughs> president of Hockey Ops for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Some bold statements on the podium yesterday. Lots of podiums. They'll get that name right eventually. Lots of podium days yesterday. Dubas, Brad Trey Living, Nick Too many Nurse. to keep track of, really. But he had some pretty big proclamations. You want to bet against us? Don't worry about it. I'm betting on myself. A little Fred Van Vliet action for your guy, Kyle Dubas. Greg Wyshynski joins us, senior NHL writer at ESPN. What did you think of Dubas yesterday? <laughs> I think I think I think my day was made when my, one of my readers sent me uh, that sound drop dropped into "Du Hast" by Ramstein, <laughs> uh, which was really the highlight of my day. <laughs> it was pretty dope. So um, you, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was, was going to say, like you know, I, I think that the most interesting thing I heard yesterday from from Kyle was the. Sort of the, the the philosophy and the, and the direction he's been given for this job. Like when Ron Hextall and Brian Burke were hired, I thought they were hired for one thing, which was to build a winner around the core and also to keep the core together, right? Like those were the reasons they were there. Like Kyle just kind of cut to the chase. He's like, look, I got a two pronged attack here. Like I got $20 million in cash space to try to build something around these guys so they can try to win another cup. But I'm also here to lay the groundwork for the next thing. And that was the most interesting thing for me as president of hockey operations, which is that this is not a short-term gig. This is a long-term, well beyond the existence of Sidney Crosby and, and Malkin and, and Latang as Penguins gig for Kyle Dubas. And so that's, that's pretty good for him, I think. And the, if the expectation isn't simply you better win while Sid's here, um, then, then he can do some pretty decent stuff there, I think, well beyond the, the, the core being there. Yeah, I do think it's actually the perfect landing spot for Kyle Dubas because he can do what he does best, which is, you know, get or attract cheap-ish talent to support a core. And I know that kind of sounds funny with the Leafs, but the fact of the matter is he's got a high-priced core and the salary cap didn't increase like it was supposed to when he still had a really competitive team and one of the best in the NHL in the regular seasons. And he can look to the future. He doesn't, you know, obviously there's some pressure to win, but in Toronto it was definitely the here and now and he was taking from the future's cap in order to enhance this roster now. So we'll see if you can find a good balance in a good spot with all the autonomy in the world in Pittsburgh. But I did find a couple things a little bit interesting from that press conference. Like the one thing that like tilted the scales for him was making sure that Sidney Crosby still wanted to win. Like what? What? Sidney Crosby? You, you weren't sure about that before you t- sat down with him? I was sure about that and I've never sat down with Sidney Crosby. Yeah, like, like I said, like... It- He's asking the guy who, like, at 90 years old will be organizing walker races around the nursing home just so he can feel the thrill of victory, whether he still wants to win a hockey game. That one was a little weird. I, I agree with you. Like, I don't know why we had to double-check with Sidney Crosby that he still wanted to win stuff. Um, but that being said, I, I thought one of the interesting things in, in that part of the conversation, too, was the work that he's done with Mike Sullivan. And, and Sullivan has been an active part of this process to try to find the new leadership um, in the executive level for the Penguins, you know, there's been obviously multiple conversations about like what he sees as the vision for this team. And, and Kyle took some stuff away from that. And, and it's only interesting because like the drum beat from the New York post that Sullivan was going to coach the New York Rangers was continuing on like through early this week. So maybe, maybe we can calm down now. I think I saw something in the New York post that, that wouldn't it be fun if Patrick Waugh was the Rangers head coach. So maybe they've moved on from mm. Sullivan to someone else to try to get some some readership going. 
Yeah, that that one with Sullivan is interesting to New York because, like, I don't know if the I don't know if the pecking order in Pitt goes like this, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Sid, then Sullivan, then the rest of them, because it it really does seem like he holds an immense amount of power there. And I get it, you want a couple Stanley Cups there, but it almost seems like he has maybe more power than any coach league wide. Uh, w- would you say that's kind of the case? Yeah, I, I I would. I mean, based on everything that we've heard vis-a-vis his input on on who's going to be team president and GM and and having a contract that extends longer than Crosby's, let's face it, like it's it's pretty it's pretty impressive how much power he has there um, for being a coach that you know hasn't really gotten too much out of the out of the team insofar as playoff victories in the last couple seasons. But I don't know. Like I I feel like Sullivan's one of those guys that when it's time for him to leave he'll be, be the one making the call it seems like based on his contract um but it's a pretty good gig and, and I, I never really thought there was a chance that he was going to leave you know before the core left at least uh so maybe we can quiet down that speculation any level of pettiness to the decision to hold the press conference 30 minutes before the bride tray living press conference and secondly would you make of the pittsburgh meme choices on twitter afterwards well, before I became a hockey writer, I was in public relations. And mm-hmm. let me tell you, there are no coincidences. <laughs> 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 that was a calculated and brilliant move uh, to drop that news minutes before Brandon Shanahan stood up uh, to announce Brad for living. And I know Shani said yesterday that he's been in contact with the CEO from the Fenway Group on Kyle, and there's no surprises, yada, yada, yada. But, I mean, the timing of that was, you know, just very catty. Um, and then as far as the memes, like they, they use the succession meme of Tom mm-hmm. putting a sticker on Greg's head at, at the end of, of the season finale. <laughs> and again, like we don't, we simply don't have the time to really explore all the subtext of that decision, but that was, that was, that was them picking a patsy. I mean, that was him picking a patsy. It was mm-hmm. someone, it was, I know it was, it's weird. You know, it was, it was, it was him picking someone who he knew would have fealty to him. Um, and, and, and that's, it's not really the way I read the Kyle Dubas hiring, and, and, unless they, they believe that he'll simply just be a, a feckless puppet for the Fenway group, but I don't think that's the case. So I, I, I understand that we all want to ride the wave of a popular meme, but we've got to really understand what we're memeing here, people. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, and I, I push back on that a little bit because Ailish made the same point earlier. I've just seen so many bad succession memes that I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like over it at this point. I'm like, oh, you picked your guy. That's funny. Succession, Pittsburgh I Penguins. Mean, that's great. At the very least, just like, in, 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 you know, increase the heat a little bit. Throw out the Kendall meme with a leaf on his face. I mean, let's at least, <laughs> yeah, let's at least use it for the purposes of trying to create a little bit more heat between these franchises. Uh, while we're on the topic of petty, uh, Calgary not letting... Brad Living hang out on the draft floor. Does that tilt the scales in terms of the petty rankings as well? It doesn't tilt the scales only because like it's, it's kind of been like the modus operandi of, of teams that have let uh, that have, uh, you know, had GMs under contract and then fire them or whatever. And then they go to another place. Like they've, they've done that before some teams. So I, I kind of understand it. It's, it's, it's a, it's a weird old school hockey tactical advantage type thing. Um, you know, that being said, you, you fired the guy, right? <laughs> like it's, I've always, I've always kind of felt this whole notion of like, you know, we, we still control you despite the fact that, uh, that you no longer work for us. Um, I guess the idea is like, you don't work for us, but we're still paying you. 
um, I don't know. It's I understand why it's done. It's it's kind of like what teams have done in the past, but it doesn't it doesn't really make it any less petty. What does he do at the draft then? Is he like in a separate room with an earpiece in? Is he able to send messages? Like, how does it well, actually work? Are you wait? Are you saying <laughs> that, that there are some things that happen no. under the? T- are you saying that when we started hearing about Kyle Dubas to the Pittsburgh Penguins in December, <laughs> that that wasn't simply just media conjecture? Um, no, I mean, yeah, he's obviously going to be in contact with the draft table in some way, shape, or form. Let's be honest, but. But to the bigger point about that, I mean, like, again, here's the thing I keep coming back to. And, and, you know, we're not going to completely, you know, dwell on the the Dubas Leafs thing until the end of time. But, like, from what we know, okay, he was asking for the the power of a president and the salary of a president. And he did this in a a very bold way. And and he had to know it, it probably wouldn't work. But... He also does this, maybe knowing that he's got that job somewhere else. Like, I know he laid out the timeline of when they reached out and when his family went to Pittsburgh and the whole thing. But, like, we've all been in negotiations before. Like, if you have in your back pocket the idea that you could have that job somewhere else, that's going to put a little wind in your sails to ask for that job in the place that you are. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just how it works, right? So the fact that this all kind of came out, and then this is where he ends up. And maybe it's Pittsburgh. Maybe it ended up be, could end up being one of the Ottawa ownership groups. I don't know. But the bottom line is that he, it's clear that he knew he could be a president somewhere if he's shooting for the moon with the Leafs, if we were to believe what we've, what we've heard about that negotiation. And so I just find it to be fascinating because, again, like, how does he know that? He, they just reached out the Sunday after he was fired. I mean, sure, okay. It all happens, uh, back channel communication all the time, whether it's, you're living in the draft table or people knowing what maybe jobs are lying ahead for them. Yeah, it definitely seems like he asked for what he already had lined up, but I guess that yeah. begs the question, why did he act like there's no way he'd ever entertain going, you know, uprooting his family at this point in his life to go anywhere else? Why do you think he took that tack if he was asking for the world? Why was he kind of uh, not like it wasn't like a sad story or anything, but he put he put it in a different direction. He's talking about his family when really the guy might have been power hungry. Okay, so I, I've thought about this. Now, the same night Succession went off the air was also the series finale of Barry with Bill Hader. Mm-hmm. And that's a show all about convincing yourself <laughs> to believe the lie. It's like, it's like you can be whoever you want to be if you believe it enough. And when I heard Duba say that at the press conference, I truly believe in that moment he was talking about being a general manager with another team. I am only going to be a general manager with the Leafs oh. uh, or else I'm going to take a year off and not be a general manager. I think that's what he was going for. And at the end of the day, he is not a general manager. So no problem, no harm, no foul. Kyle Dubas. Wow, you really, really, and you have uh, expertly read through uh, between the lines there, but I guess <laughs> if we want to go to the semantics route, uh, he does have a point, and you have a point, uh, Greg Wyshynski, who's the senior writer. He also said next ESPN. week, and it was more than a week. So, I mean, okay, okay. <laughs> if, you, if you look yeah, yeah. at it literally. You know what, Kyle? You're off the hook. He you, didn't lie at all. He didn't lie about those two very specific <laughs> Again, things. Like, like, like all, all proclamations are off when you, get, when you lose your job, right? I mean, like the, everything, that's the bottom line. It's like everything he said was premised on the idea mm-hmm. that he would be the one to make the choice. Not that, like, like if he's like Leafs or bust and the Leafs come back to him and say, hey, guess what, bust. 
like then then all of a sudden you you can't really like you know keep your plans in place i don't think if you're Kyle Dubas. yeah probably a bit uh you know unrealistic to expect what 37 year old to just not work because he can't have <laughs> I the made job. a promise can't, I can't have the job it. that he wanted yeah it's uh that would be a little silly okay let's get to the current gm of the toronto maple leafs who was unveiled to the media yesterday uh, first impressions, not that you, you know, first you have many impressions already of Brad for living, but first impressions as a member of the Toronto Maple Leafs, how do you think he came across yesterday? Said, said the right things. I mean, you know, he kept the door open for, for some big changes to potentially happen. The thing I like about your living, uh, is that if, if you're looking, if you're saying, okay, the core is going to be kept together. It's all about what's around them. Like he's really good at what's around them. Like if you look at this, the current state of the Calgary Flames, um, that's a tremendous supporting cast in service of superstars that are no longer there. Like I think we've talked about it before. Like the idea that Goudreau and and Kachuk are, are leaving is kind of like a solar system that doesn't have a sun anymore. But the the, re, the revolving planets are all pretty good. Like your Lynn Holmes and your and 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 your Backlunds and everybody else. Like like there's a pretty good team in place. In Calgary, so if you're looking at that, you're looking at his eye for talent and 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 talent acquisition, then you could be pretty confident that there's going to be a good team in place around the core four. Um, how he gets there, how it's developed, those are the real questions. Um, but I think he of the of the options that were available to the Leafs, if they were looking for someone that had experience, I think True Living was probably at the top of my list. So I thought I thought he did well. But again, if I say he does well. And, and, and Dubas got praised like the Pittsburgh media was like praising Dubas like he was like Moses yesterday. Mm-hmm. Like it's I, 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 I've never, ever heard a general manager introductory press conference where people didn't come away thinking, wow, that guy's a lot smarter than I thought he was. Wow, that guy's got a real vision for the future. Like these things are designed to make you feel that way. And I thought your livings uh, hit the marks uh, as well as expected. Uh, Greg Wyshynski of ESPN. <clears throat> so Matthew's obviously the A1 priority for uh, Brad Trey living. How do you think that this plays out? Obviously, he says that he's got a good relationship with uh, his um, agent, which is a positive, but they've never really met, and he has to go kind of woo him and court him over in Arizona. Um, if he doesn't sign an extension by July 1st, which most people are thinking that he won't, is there still a pathway that this is a successful offseason for Brad Trey living in his first spot as GM? Yeah, I, I know the, the Matthews part of it, obviously, is the biggest question mark, and, and I know that that was pretty one of the bigger headlines that came out of yesterday, just like what his approach is going to be. Um, I've, I've long thought that Austin stays in Toronto. I know he really likes it there. I think he loves being Leaf. I think it's one of those situations where it's not uh, a, a thing where he wants to go someplace else to win. I think it's one of those situations where he really wants to win in Toronto uh, and have that be part of his legacy. Um, when it comes to the money, I mean, we all kind of know what the money's going to probably end up being. It's going to be like, a dollar more than McKinnon, <laughs> right? Like, like, like it's, it's all about being the highest paid player in the National Hockey League at some point. So you can kind of thump your chest and say that, and, and his agent can do the same. Um, then it just comes down to term and all those things. I, I think there's a path to getting it done. Um, and, and obviously, like, um, the, the hope is that it isn't going to be a situation where Austin tries to maximize the moment and go for a max contract or something like that, because then obviously it really throws a lot of plans into disarray. Um, I don't see that happening. I think they'll probably see it through and, uh, and, and hopefully true living can, can land the plane. So true living lays out uh, Austin Matthews as priority one. Uh, I don't know. Like he didn't say explicitly priority number two, the Stanley cup. But if it was Kyle Dubas, who was still in charge of this team with Sheldon Keefe and core four, it would be truly Stanley cup or bust. 
uh, which for a living yesterday, I get the feeling that they're trying to be like, hey, we're not a desperate team. We're This is a new era, and we're no longer desperate. Do you think they tried in their efforts yesterday to kind of shift the timeline a little bit and be like, okay, we're going to deal with Matthews, and we're going to be a good team, but, you know, we're going to be building towards something, and it might take a couple years. Yeah, and that, that felt very much kind of like let's let's let the steam release from the pressure cooker a little bit. You know, like they win a playoff round, people are starting to plan parades, they lose in the second round, now it's it's all thrown into dis- the disarray, Dubas is gone, you know, what's going to happen with Keith? Like all this stuff was happening in a, in a pretty short amount of time, uh, leading to, I think, a lot of panic in the, in the marketplace and in the media and, and in the city. Um, so it, it did feel kind of a little bit calculated, like let's, let's pull on the reins a little bit, let's slow this down, let's, uh, let's recalculate, it's going to be okay, these guys are all, all young, we know what we're doing, and, uh, and sort of recalibrate things. And, and I think when you make a change at the top, it's natural to do that. I mean, rare is the situation where you make a change at the top and like immediately the expectation is that you're going to win a cup the next season. Like, I mean, that was kind of the situation with Hextall in Pittsburgh, right? Like he comes on and it's like, okay, we've got to figure this thing out before these guys get any older. Um, and clearly that's not the situation in, in Toronto. Oh, everything does revolve around Toronto here, but the cup final has uh, just snuck up on us a little bit. Tomorrow, vibe <laughs> check, uh, it's cup final eve. Um, you got Vegas and Florida. Obviously, we've seen Florida a lot. Um, who's got the edge in the series in your perspective? I think Vegas does. That might be recency bias. I, just, I was covering them against Dallas, and, and I, was really, I was really impressed. I mean, like, there's two games in that series where they just absolutely thumped Dallas uh, three goals in the first period and, and the game was over. Um, I think they've got the advantage in overall depth, but forward uh, they've got four lines going Florida's fourth line is one of those. Let's throw it out there and pray. It doesn't hurt us kind of lines and, and Vegas doesn't have that. They've got a really good fourth line. Uh, they've got better depth on the blue line. I think that with Theodore and, and, and Petrangelo anchoring two pairings, they, the, the Panthers don't have a guy of that, of that caliber on their roster. Uh, the Panthers have the huge advantage in goal, and I think the real question for Vegas is whether Aiden Hill turns into a pumpkin in the final. I don't think he will. He's been, I think, much better than simply don't lose for us. I think he's been an active reason why they've been winning. Um, and then you got special teams and all that stuff, too. I, I, I have Vegas in six, uh, home ice being one reason, the layoff for the Panthers being another reason. Even Paul Maurice said it's going to be hard to like recapture the emotional space that they were in with the momentum they were riding until this gigantic break, the fourth longest break, by the way, for a team between the conference final and the Stanley cup final. So I got Vegas and six, uh, again, might be recency bias. And that's also taking into account the fact that the Panthers as everybody in Toronto has seen could simply be a team of destiny this season. So you got Vegas and six, but on a recent con Smythe ranking, you had uh, two Florida Panthers at the top and one, was Matthew Kachuk. Uh, why, in the event that Florida wins, and maybe it's possible that a Panther still wins if Vegas wins, but very unlikely, uh, why do you have Kachuk over Bob right now? So the way we do the Smythe watch is the way that we do the awards watch during the season, which is that we poll actual voters. Uh, we, we polled a bunch of writers, some of whom we expect to have a Smythe vote, and, and Kachuk actually only won by one vote. So it, it's basically a dead heat between him and Bobrovsky right now. The, the way Kachuk wins is if he maybe has one or two iconic moments in, in the final and the Panthers win the cup. Because as good as Bobrovsky's been, and he's been great, and I think we can all agree that he's the reason they beat the Leafs, um, you know, he, he hasn't scored a goal to win the sixth longest game in NHL history. He didn't score the goal in game five against Boston to turn that series around. He didn't score the series clincher against Carolina. 
I mean, like Kachuk has had so many big moments along the way, along with embodying the the underdog vibe and the swagger and you know the chewing of the of the mouth mouth guard and everything else. Like he's just he's just been the, that guy for this team, and that's why I think he's maybe just a little bit ahead of Obrovsky in the eyes of, in the eyes of the writers because writers like to write about things like Matthew Kachuk. The the Knights part of this is really interesting because Eichel has the lead right now amongst the potential voters. But I, the guy I have my eye on is Jonathan Marsh. So mm. he's only one point behind um, Eichel for the lead in points. He's only one goal behind William Carlson for the lead in goals. He's an original Golden Knight, which I think is a really nice story if, if one of those guys ends up winning the Conn Smythe. And don't forget, <laughs> he was tossed aside by the Florida Panthers. Mm-hmm. That's the reason he's a Golden Knight. And so you've got a little bit of that undercurrent of like chip on the shoulder revenge thing going on in this series too. So three good reasons why Marsh so would be an interesting choice for MVP. And, and on top of that, like I said, he's got the statistics uh, that might back it up too. Greg, we talked with someone yesterday who is running the gauntlet, Vegas, Florida, Vegas, Florida, then Nashville. Are you doing the same and how are you preparing for it? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm actually picking up the series in game three. I got a, I got some TV stuff on Saturday. I'm doing, our old friend Ardo Cal uh, mm-hmm. and I are doing uh, an international pregame show on wow, Saturday night, which awesome. is kind of a fun deal. Yeah, it's cool, right? So our show, The Drop, is on Saturday. We've got uh, a full Stanley Cup preview. Um, you can find it wherever you stream stuff. Uh, and then the the people, the good people of, of Uruguay will uh, see me uh growing the game on their pregame show. Yeah, so it'll be really fun. But no, man, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a a big travel series, but at the same time, it's also a big uh, extra day in each city series. Like mm-hmm. that's the reason I worry about the writers. Like <laughs> idle hands are the devil's tools, and they're going to have extra time <laughs> in their hands in Fort Lauderdale and Las Vegas. So <sighs> prayers up for our friends in the writing community. Yeah, definitely should be an interesting one, and the hockey should be pretty good too. Uh, Greg, we appreciate you coming on this morning. Enjoy the Cup final. Uh, best yep. of luck with the international preview show. Yeah. Uh, we're international hosts, so hopefully we can watch we'll a little bit watch. of that too. <laughs> you're, come on. When it comes to the NHL, you're domestic. We all know that. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Thanks, Greg. Take care. Uh, that's Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer at ESPN. If you're looking for the Jonathan Marcheseau odds for Conn Smythe, I have them plus 675. I think that's a pretty good one. There's also odds, and we'll get into the wake and rake. We should, I guess we should have done a little bit more plan. Maybe we can do a little impromptu. Uh, but the guy to receive the cup second is a big That's thing. That's always the and best. And it is so obvious who it's going to be, right? It's going to be March is so second, the longest tenured night 100%. with the most experience. Like, you could be Riley Smith, but March is no. so is a bigger name than Riley Smith. Definitely. Uh, and uh, Sergey Bobrovsky, right? Like, Mark yes. Stahl, maybe. But usually Mark Stahl, like, older, Eric Stahl, older. They're probably going to be, like, fourth and fifth in line, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Sergey Bobrovsky makes all the sense of the world for second even though it's Matthew Kachuk who might win the Smythe. So if you're looking at that, I mean, we will look at the numbers quickly and recap uh, before we get off the air at about 8.55. I think those are always super fun to bet on because uh, you, there's a lot of range of how that could go. Um, okay, we have one more guest on our show this morning, Brett Siegel, NBA insider at Clutch Points. Let's break down game one. The Nuggets looked like they didn't miss a beat sitting around waiting for the Heat to stroll into town. We got some impressions from game one, and we'll do our wake and rake to wrap up the show. So you have some time to send those picks in at 590-590. Brett Siegel next. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, back on the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590, the fan final block of the week. It is indeed Friday. Justin Cuthbert, Ailish Forfar. How's your eyeball? Eyeball is improved. If you're playing injured. Well, that's the thing is uh, contact lens will dry out over time over the course of an interview with John Morosi. Yeah, and I keep looking over and you've got it in your hands and your grubby fingers. You're trying to put right, it in your I'm eye. Grubby fingers. I stopped <laughs> putting it in my eye. Yeah, it was just distracting. I re- and I had to go recover it in the bathroom. It is recovered. I'm seeing clearly. <laughs> and I cannot, cannot, I saw clearly last night, game one of the NBA Finals. The Denver Nuggets look like the superior team, but uh, we'll go through impressions with our next guest, Brett Siegel, NBA insider for Clutch Sports. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Uh, we are doing pretty good. What was your main takeaway from game one? I mean, the, the score wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a blow away by any mean, uh, stretch of the imagination for the Denver Nuggets, but it seemed like they were pretty much in control from start to finish. Uh, does that portend great things for the Denver area as this series continues? Yeah, for sure. Denver controlled this game pretty much from start to finish, like you mentioned. And other than the fourth quarter with Miami, he actually outscored the Nuggets and were getting shots to fall from the perimeter. It was just the Nuggets game. And you, you look at what they did defensively in this game. It was a masterclass performance on that end of the floor for Denver. They held Miami to 40% shooting from the floor, 33% from three-point range. And they took Jimmy Butler out of his comfort zone in this game. He only finished with 13 points on 6 of 14 shooting. And the biggest thing that stands out is that Jimmy Butler was minus 17 when he was on the floor. And that was the worst plus minus out of any player in this game. So you have to credit Michael Malone and his staff for taking Jimmy Butler out of the equation and I think on Denver's side of things as good as Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray were I was extremely impressed with what I saw from Michael Porter Jr. 14 points 13 rebounds two blocks he really made an impact on the defensive end of the floor when his shot wasn't falling offensively and you you said it Denver just looks like the more complete team in this series yeah, Aaron Gordon was a great depth, uh, not depth piece. I mean, he's a definitely an important part of this team, but it seems like they just had that ancillary talent around a guy like Nikola Jokic, who is not only immensely talented, but maybe the smartest player in basketball right now. Do you subscribe to that as well? Yeah, absolutely. And they, they were talking about it on the pregame show of how Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray are kind of like the modern day Stockton and Malone. I don't necessarily know if they're the same kind of players as them, but the one-two punch of not being able to stop both of them, that, that's a really good comparison right there because you got two guys who you can't really stop. Nikola Jokic, for the most part, I thought was held in check on the offensive end of the floor. He got a little bit of, of floaters here and there in the lane, and he got to the free-throw line. But entering the fourth quarter, I didn't really think that he was having a big scoring output. Then you look down at the box score, and this guy ends up with 27 points, the most in the game where it was a game that Jamal Murray was really the dominant one on the offensive end of the floor. So Nikola Jokic, 27-point triple-double in a game where he really wasn't the main factor for this team. I think that's the scary thing for the Denver Nuggets is that he has a triple-double. He leads the team in scoring in game one, and yet you don't really look at this game as being a dominant Joker game. Yeah, I love like the analysis of him in the game. They're talking about how he actually hadn't made a mistake the entire night. It's pretty you just making 100% of the reads at all times is pretty remarkable and it seems like it's going to be really really difficult for Miami to contain him. As you mentioned, it wasn't uh an extraordinary performance by any means at least from a statistical standpoint and yet he was still the singular most dominant force by a mile. Uh we are huge Jamal Murray fans up here of course. 
Uh, he's from uh, a suburb of Toronto in Kitchener. Uh, what makes Jamal Murray so special? What does he do that is elite, 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 better than many players in the NBA? What separates him and makes him so that he can be the running mate for a player like Nikola Jokic on a championship caliber team? I really think it's his confidence. I mean, you look at Jamal Murray throughout the years, he's never been the biggest guard in the league. He's never been the best scorer in terms of being productive from that point guard position. There's always guys that you look at above him, and there always will be guys that we look at above him. But in his mind, he is the best point guard in the league, and, and he goes up against anyone. He doesn't care what the challenge is. He's willing to either drive to the rim and score. He's willing to shoot from the perimeter. He does anything he needs to do to set his team up for success. And I think that's what really separates him compared to other guards in the league. And that, that mindset was there when he was coming back from the ACL injury. It killed him not to be out there. And you could see, and in his post-game press conferences, he mentions all the time how he had to fight through adversity and fight through that mental struggle. He stayed strong through all this. He's now on the biggest stage that in the NBA that you can be on. And he's performing at the highest level possible. And throughout these playoffs, he's had monster performances that we just haven't talked about. We've given a lot of props to Jimmy Butler. We've given a lot of props to Jokic. But we have to really look at what Jamal Murray has done and the product that he's put out and start having these conversations about him being one of the best point guards in this league. So it looked like the Nuggets didn't have much rest after a nine-day layoff, but the the Heat obviously had a little bit more to fight through to get to the final. Um, obviously not a great start in game one, but what can they do widespread on this team to try to stop uh, the role that the Nuggets have been on? Well, I think the biggest thing that whenever they have practice, whether it's on Friday or Saturday before game two, I think that they just need to get up some shots because mm-hmm. that three-point shot needs to fall if they're going to have a chance to beat the Denver Nuggets, who were one of the best perimeter shooting teams during the regular season. They're obviously not going to be able to beat them in the paint with Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, and Nikola Jokic controlling that. And so you look at what Miami needs to do, Bam Adebayo scoring 26 points, that was great, but I don't anticipate him going 13 for 25 every single game. If Bam Adebayo is taking 25 shots a game for you, you're probably not going to win this series. He's a great compliment piece, but he cannot be your number one option. Obviously, Jimmy Butler needs to step up. 13 points is not acceptable for a star that wants to win a championship for his team. You look at Max Struess, 0 for 10. Caleb Martin, who is a hero in the Eastern Conference Finals, one for seven. So I think that game one, obviously you're going to have your your NBA Finals jitters, per se, of entering this series and, and all the hype surrounding it. So that all that adrenaline is under their belt now. They know what to expect. They saw the Denver Nuggets in game one. It's going to be very interesting to see how they respond in game two because if there's one thing that we know, it's that Eric Spolstra is going to have his guys ready to play, especially on the defensive end of the floor. They can make it a series. Um, I'm believing in it. No sweeps here. Uh, Brett Siegel, NBA Insider at Clutch Points. Okay, so let's talk about Nick Nurse to Philadelphia because we saw a lot of podium moments for Nick Nurse here in Toronto. Maybe not as many uh, hard questions were asked. Yesterday he was debut as the Philly uh, bench boss and he got a a little bit of, um, I don't know, tough questions. What do you make of Nick Nurse and his time in Philly starting off with, with a little bit of heat? Yeah, well, I think Nick Nurse is a fantastic coach. I think that we saw that throughout the years in Toronto. He knows what he's doing. He gets the most out of his players. And he's built some very strong relationships through the years with his players. So I think that getting a coach like that in Philadelphia is going to be very good for Joel Embiid and the supporting Mm -hmm. cast there. But the one thing that stood out to me in that press conference was when he was asked about James Harden, it didn't seem like that anyone from the 76ers brass really wanted to answer questions Mm -hmm. about Harden. 
He obviously has that player option that he is most likely going to be opting out of to become an unrestricted free agent. And when he was asked about Harden, Nick Nurse kind of dodged the question at his introductory press conference. I mean, he didn't want any part of answering those questions. And when he was asked if he wants Harden back, he simply said that James Harden is a great player Mm -hmm. and that James has a decision to make, and he'd be happy if he came back. But the way he said it, I don't think that he was intending for it to come off this way, but the way he said it, I took that as kind of a sarcastic manner with the way of him saying he'd be very happy if he came back. So it's going to be interesting to see how this scenario plays out. So in, in terms of maybe familiar faces joining the Sixers, I know you're, you're in on maybe Fred Fleet, Fred Van Vliet you're talking about on Wednesday that they might be expected to pursue him as a possible replacement for James Harden. Um, I mean, that'd be kind of tough here for Raptors fans who, who really like Fred Van Vliet, but is there, there a better fit maybe for the Sixers for him moving forward? Right, so Fred VanVleet also has a player option that he's most likely going to be opting out of this offseason in, in search of some more money with the CBA deals going up and the money around the league going up. So Fred VanVleet will be an unrestricted free agent based on what I'm hearing, and it seems like that he is very high on the 76ers list. Obviously, that connection to Nick Nurse is very strong, and the 76ers, if they lose James Harden, they're going to need to find a replacement in their backcourt, and there's really no better player out there to replace James Harden than somebody who's familiar with Nick Nurse's system, can give you two-way play, and really be a floor general alongside Joe Embiid. So Fred Van Vliet going to Philadelphia is a very real possibility right now. Obviously, from the Toronto Raptors, Masai Ujiri and that front office need to figure out what direction they're going as a franchise because bringing Van Vliet back and keeping Siakam and not trading him and, and kind of keeping the group that they have it's still a very plausible outcome this offseason. It just really depends on what direction they want to go because Scotty Barnes is a younger talent that they want to build around for the foreseeable future. You still have trade rumors associating OG and Anobi, and they have the 13th overall pick. They could potentially put a really good trade package together to move up and grab a top five pick and grab one of these top prospects in this year's draft. So if Portland, for example, is looking to trade that third overall pick and Scoot Henderson is on the board, I could see a very real scenario where Toronto goes out, trades up, and gets Scoot Henderson to build with Scotty Barnes moving forward. Uh, Brett, if we're scouring the floor for bread, breadcrumbs, uh, you know, we got some insight on where the, the Raptors might be leaning in terms of their coaching candidates. Jordy Fernandez and Darko Rajakovic, uh, Darko of Memphis, Jordy of the Kings. Uh, you know, if we're looking at coaching candidates like that, not necessarily experienced guys, not necessarily those with a winning pedigree, uh, guys who might be a work in progress. Uh, what do you think their their search and maybe the candidates that have been outlined and underscored here says about where the Raptors might be headed? Yeah, I think that they have one of the most intriguing coaching searches out there, especially when you look at names like Steve Nash, who people wouldn't necessarily think would be at the forefront of a coaching search. And then obviously J.J. Redick, former NBA player, former guard, now ESPN analyst. So I think that they have a really good group of candidates and a very wide array of different basketball minds. And I think that is just ties back in to Masai Ujiri's philosophy of really getting a well-rounded know-it-all of who's out there and who they could potentially bring in as a coach. Obviously, with Adrian Griffin gone and going to the Milwaukee Bucks, that takes a candidate off the board right there. So who will they potentially hire? It's going to be really interesting to see. I think that they're in the back end of their search right now. Obviously, the Kings assistant is on that list as well, Jordi Fernandez. So it's going to be interesting to see where they go from here. I would think that Sergio 
Scar- Scariolo. I'm sorry if I pronounced his name wrong, but I, I feel like that he is going to be one of these finalists for this job. He has ties to the Raptors organization, has fans within that front office as well. So I think that he could potentially be their next head coach. But Masai Ujiri and this front office are really giving a lot of thought to this coaching search, and it's very clear to see that they're not going to rush things and just pick somebody that's available. They're really going to hone in and figure out who they want their head coach to be for the next four, five, maybe even six years in foreseeable future. Yeah, it seems like they're really, really focusing on intel gathering. And I'm not saying like, you know, Steve Nash can't be your five, six-year plan guy, but it seems like a young prospect in terms of the coaching ranks makes a lot of sense. Uh, and Jordy Fernandez and Rajakovich would be a couple of those guys. Uh, a guy who is very experienced is Bob Myers, who made the decision to leave the Golden State Warriors. Uh, what do you, two-part question, I guess, what do you think that means for the Warriors and what is Bob Myers going to do next? Yeah, it was a shock to many within the Warriors organization from what I was told. They wanted Bob Myers back. They expected Bob Myers to be back. But obviously the contract talks had stalled throughout the season. That was not a good sign. And then the fact that he wasn't saying anything once they left, another indication that he was going to leave. So Bob Myers out as president of the Warriors front office, president of basketball operations. He's going to be taking some time off from basketball. It does not seem like he's going to be rushing in to another position that is open, whether that's the Clippers or or the New York Knicks after Scott Perry was just announced that he's leaving. So it does seem like that for the time being, he is not going to be running an NBA front office. He could pursue other ventures. ESPN has been widely pursuing him, and I think that'd be a great addition for their offseason coverage, talking about free agency. But you look at where the Warriors are as a franchise, they still have their core of Curry, Thompson, and Green. Joe Lacob made it very clear in this Bob Myers farewell press conference that they're going to remain contenders and the money does not matter. He's going to make the moves and spend the money it takes to contend for a championship again. So it doesn't seem like that they're going to be in much of a mood to really rebuild or take a step back. Mike Dunleavy Jr., who is in that front office, has really been leading things behind the scenes alongside Bob Myers. It does seem like that he's going to be the new voice and the new figurehead in that front office for the Warriors and with the draft coming up. That's been his specialty through the years. So it doesn't really seem like much is going to change. What is going to change, though, with the Warriors is the relationships that they have from ownership to front office to players and head coach Steve Kerr. Bob Myers was really that connecting force through the years. He held a unique role that many executives don't have because this is a tough business between front office and players. But he's had some very strong relationships with the core of this team through the years. He's been the main problem solver. So it's going to be very interesting to see if some of these problems linger over from this year to the following year, especially with Bob Myers not being the reasoning voice anymore. Last one for you, Brad. It seems like the Pistons very much paid the Detroit tax, uh, giving $72 million to Monty Williams to coach the team over a long period of time. Uh, is that like a precedent-setting move that will change the way every coach handles contract negotiations? Or is that just Detroit paying a lot in order to get a big, big name in the coaching ranks? Well, everybody loves to get paid, and when you look at some of these coaches moving forward, whether they're up for a contract extension or signing on with a new team, that's definitely going to be at the forefront of their mind, and they're going to compare what they've done through the years to what Monty Williams has done and say, well, this guy just got $72 million. My numbers are better than him. I want more money. So I, I definitely think that we could be heading down that kind of route. But at the same time, Coaches don't necessarily get paid the same as the players. This is a little bit of an exception contract simply because Monty Williams did not want to coach during the 23-24 season. He was prepared to take off 
especially since the Phoenix Suns were still going to be paying him. The Detroit Pistons wanted him. They wanted him to be their guy moving forward. They felt that he's a veteran voice that can really teach this young team what it takes to go from rebuilding to being a contender, much like he took the Phoenix Suns in the NBA bubble that one year. They went 8-0 in the NBA bubble. That was really the rise from rebuild to being a contending team. So the Troy Weaver GM of the Pistons and their owner are really hopeful that Monty Williams can turn this thing around with former number one overall pick Cade Cunningham and a bunch of young, versatile talents around him. The Pistons, they actually have a really good roster. I think that they're going to surprise many teams heading into next season. They still have a lot of kinks to work out. They still have to round out the rest of their roster. But they do have a strong young core that they're going to be building around for many years to come. Monty Williams, a very well-respected head coach around the league. He is now with the Detroit Pistons for many years to come. Oh, that's good. Give $72 million to the guy who maybe just wanted to be fishing this year instead of coaching basketball. Like he's going he's gonna to do a great job for sure. But uh, when someone tells you they don't want to do a job, I don't know, maybe maybe they're not the guy to give $72 million to. We'll see about that. Uh, Brett, this was fun this morning. Enjoy the rest of the NBA Finals. We definitely appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's Brett Siegel, NBA insider at Clutch Points. Clutch Points. Clutch Points. Let's we, get some clutch. Should we take the points tonight points on the Wake and Rake? The wake and Rake. Wake up! Now it's time for Wake and Rake. You could be raking in the dough with your kind of accuracy. Show me the money! With Ailish and Justin. So we might be on a two-day heater here when it comes to our picks, depending on which version of the Wake and Rake you got yesterday. Because yeah, we're getting a little greasy giving up this, oh, you could do that or that. We got to be a little bit more firm. It depends if you're listening live or not. We had a pick that started 10 minutes after the show ended. It was Felix, I believe, and uh, we wanted to give an alternative option for those catching on the pod. And the alternative missed. So we'll take a, a half a win. How about that? Okay. Okay, so today we've got Jays and Mets kicking off a three-game series in New York. we got Chris Bassett on the mound versus Justin Verlander. I'm taking Chris Bassett over strikeouts. He had a pretty bad last outing against the Rays. This is a former team of his. I think he's going to, as John Morosi mentioned, he's going to come in. He's going to want to pitch pretty well and uh, make a little bit of a statement. So I'm going to go over four and a half strikeouts, even in that last game where he was run out the door after four innings, seven earned runs. He still hit the over strikeouts. So I'm going to go over four and a half strikeouts for Chris Bassett tonight against the Mets. Okay, I'm going to the nightcap in Major League Baseball. We got Logan Webb for the San Francisco Giants at home against Kramer in the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, Kramer's more in the Manoa mold, while Logan Webb Oof. is more in the Gosman mold. So I will go with the more dominant pitcher, even though I'm standing in front or I'm going to get in front of uh, the freight train that is the Baltimore <laughs> Orioles right now. I'm willing to do it for a guy like Logan Webb at home against one of the lesser pitchers in baseball. Maybe they'll get caught in his web. You got to pay to play a little bit, minus 160, but I think it's a good pick. Okay, let's go through our Wake and Rake anchor picks. Neil in Newfoundland back in it with the French Open pick. Loves Fokina. Plus seven and a half games versus Djokovic, oh, the GOAT. Wow. I feel better about getting in front of the Orioles. Here We're getting we in front of Djokovic. Bokina is a very tough out for any player. It tends to play long, close matches. He beat Djokovic last season in Monte Carlo and is looking at the top of his game right now. I also sprinkle of Fokina on the money line. A plus 500 would be really good value bet. Fokina plus Neil. seven and a half. Wowza. Neil fading the Joker. Okay, good morning, Corey from Port Hope here again. He's here every morning. Another wake <laughs> and rake hit yesterday. Let's head into the weekend by making it three in a row. It has been three. It has been two in a row so far. Uh, for my wake and rake, he's got the Rays money line over the Red Sox. 
Let's quickly look at the pitching matchup there. I will tell you. Glasnow. Yes. On the mound for the Tampa Bay Rays. And the Whitlock. Okay, happy Friday, Ailish and Justin. I got a bold bet. Chapo over Carlos Alcaraz, number one seed. Woof. For Wake and Rake, I'm <laughs> You're take... getting aggressive at the People front are open. bold this morning. Wake and Rake, I'm going Mets under eight and a half total runs. Jays and Mets. Uh, and Mets that's Courier yeah. Christmas saga. And final one. Happy Friday. Jays on the run line for Ron. Jules would take Bo over bases. Have a great weekend. Okay, so we got a lot of baseball and one tennis pick or two tennis picks if you want to go I mean the, Fok- the Fokina pick is so bold that I'm uh that gravitating I'm almost, towards it. Yeah, I'm almost like kind of into it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm playing the money line, but I'm seven and a half. Oh, it starts in six minutes and fifty one seconds. Okay, so we got another Damn it. Uh, so I'm gonna play it quickly. If you're betting live, do it right now, Justin. Maybe bet him on the money line too for fun. Um okay, so if we can't put that in the wake and rake just because we don't want to disadvantage our podcast listeners. Um, I like Ray's money line over the Red Sox, but I also like anything from the Jays game that Ron and Jules have been cooking up. So what do you want to do? Um, Bo over bases. He's the hottest player in baseball. If we're looking for correlation, you're under... And your Bassett love, they are kind of... I kind of like that, they too. They kind of work together. Under tonight in the Mets game. And Jace. Okay, let's do that. So, here's your parlay for today. It is Chris Bassett over four and a half strikeouts and under eight and a half total runs. Same game parlay. And add San Francisco Giants on the money line. That together is plus 422. A little baby one for a little Friday. No problem. No problem. Uh, so uh, we were talking about Stanley Cup futures here. The Stanley Cup final begins tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Talking about the Conn Smythe and the Stanley Cup handoff. Greg Wyshynski polled actual voters, mm-hmm. and they are leaning Kachuk over Bob. They're also maybe gravitating towards Jonathan Marcheseau over Jack Eichel. Marcheseau for the Conn Smythe is about 650, but I like the handoff to Marcheseau better. Okay. So if you like Vegas... And you kind of strategize, you know, the order of the Stanley Cup, pass it around. Marcheseau is probably the original misfit in a lot of ways. Uh, there are a couple holdovers from that team, of course. But Jonathan Marcheseau's kind of the guy in terms of day oneers. Him and Riley Smith. Marcheseau's a bigger name. Marcheseau's having a better playoffs. Marcheseau plus 500 Stanley Cup handoff, I like. Okay. Also, good luck to the Peter Peets. We're in the semifinals. Who I wrote off. They're back, baby. Go, Pete's go. All right, everybody, have a wonderful weekend. We'll chat with you Monday. It's our pleasure today to introduce you all to Kyle Dubas.